0: Good morning. Wonderful to be with you today. Debbie and I uh, are living in a state of high anticipation uh, for the day when our grandchildren arrive later this week. And we're not just waiting for them to show up, uh, we are acting on it. Uh, downloading new books, saving huge boxes that came in. You can't throw something like that away when you've got grandkids coming. Uh, Debbie is making food. We're buying things at ShopRite that we normally don't have in our house. We are living every day thinking about this day of anticipation when our grandkids are here and all the fun begins we're not thinking of the exhaustion and what will happen at the end we're just front end excited the final chapters of zechariah this prophetic book we've been preaching through keeps lifting up before us it in fact is centered around the theme of that day every chapter in the end of the book is filled with references telling us what will happen on that day it is the day in which god fulfills all that he has promised to us when what has come in part is complete and there is nothing left for god to improve upon In these verses that we've been examining, God calls us to live in anticipation of that day because it it outshines the hard realities we have this day. This day can be difficult wearing. We wonder if we can get through it. Uh, But that day which is coming... Will be so wondrous that it will blot out every heartache we have today but we're not just called to have a heart and a life then of anticipation God calls us to a life of transformation because of that day for that day is already dawning it began when God entered this world in the person of Jesus Christ, God and man who went to the cross, died for the sins of all who would trust in Him, was raised from the dead, and that salvation goes forth through the work of the Holy Spirit, grabbing the lives of those who didn't know Him, transforming us. When we are in Christ, we are fundamentally changed a change that has begun and god is is committed to working on it and it is it is quickly coming to a point of full completion we live in anticipation and we live with the reality that we are people now of transformation. We know it, it's not complete. We see the gaps and lapses still within us. But God is transforming us into beauty that is at His capacity. What God is making us into is not the beauty of life and character that we just see in other people, or that we can imagine, or that we can work toward. This is something that is at the capacity that only God can accomplish. You know, some of you may have one of those, uh, you know, bubbling. Uh, fountain, bird bass in your yard that you make that just sets off the yard, makes it something special. Uh, God makes Niagara Falls. Uh, we, you know, string these Edison lights and things over our decks, so and we think, wow, this is such a great environment. God cast billions of stars beyond number. We have people that we admire and that we think that in general, they're they're just faithful, good people. God gives us Jesus. The capacity that God has to make something wondrous, glorious, and beautiful in the human heart is what he is doing right now in every believer. And the verses before us speak to this, encouraging and challenging us to believe it, to embrace it, to live it out. So let's read Zechariah chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, meaning the people who love God, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his visions when he prophesies. He will not put on a a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I'm no prophet. I'm, I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks, what are the wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of a friend. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them. As one refines silver and and tests them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Our Heavenly Father... We come We come bowing before your voice and your presence. For you, you have spoken, and your voice still echoes. It is here. Lord, even this morning, you're, you inserted yourself in, in grace and in helping me to improve parts of this message with which I was frustrated. You have shown your your goodness, that you have things to say to us. So may our hearts and ears be open to you for all that you say is worthy and good. Have your way in full with us. With each one who needs to know you today in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first part of this chapter, there are two particular sins identified of what the Lord will cleanse away from the lives of His people. These were both sins that they had historically struggled with. So, as a as a people collectively, they would identify, yeah, we've had a problem with those areas. The the first is, in verse 2, that their struggle with idolatry will end. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols for the land, so that they shall be remembered no more. Idols are anything that takes a place in our lives that God should have. So idols can be our desires, whether it's a perverse desire or a desire for something noble and good, but that has become so big and dominating that it, it, it pushes God off to the side a, a little bit. It can be our fears, when fears become so great that those fearful things become bigger than God and and cause us to doubt Him, and we live bowed by the fears rather than bowing to the Lord God. Idols can be relationships that we want so badly that we compromise with what we know is good and true because we have to have this relationship or we're so enamored with the person or we're, we just, our fear of, of people and wanting to please them, that we, we honor them and dishonor God. But on that day, a day you will know a day we will forever be speaking of on that day. Our idols will no longer be remembered because Christ will so fill and satisfy our hearts that the desire for anything less, yeah, there, there'll be no draw to us because we will see Christ in full. It's not that Christ will be better on that day. It's that we will see him with clarity. Oh, that's what we need. The Bible repeatedly speaks in connection of our sight of Christ and our transformation. There is a connection, for he is so wondrous that when we truly see him of heart the desire for him the awareness of how he is better than all else For the bible says when we see him some of the most wondrous words we've ever heard when we see him, we shall be like him. That will take place on that day. What has your gaze? Are you making sure that every day you, you force into your day some gaze upon Christ. As you read his word, you're, Jesus, you're here. You're in this. As we go through our day, Lord, you're, you're here. And you have purpose. You've already gone before me in this day. Do we gaze upon him? There's another sin identified there's struggle with false prophets, those who distorted the truths of God, claiming to speak for God, but misshaping it to fit what would please men or exalt themselves. That will also end. For verse 2 goes on, And also I will remove from the land the prophets and spirit of uncleanness. So in all that follows, he's speaking of false prophets, those who distort the truths of God. He says, on that day, even their parents will not withhold the proper judgment that falsely speaking of God deserves. And then in verse 4, these false prophets will be so ashamed that they make up degrading stories about themselves rather than admit that they have spoken improperly about God. That's what these expressions are. Uh, when they say, I'm no prophet, I'm I'm just a worker of the soil for a man who sold me in my youth. These are, the scripture making actually these extreme, almost humorous statements. Someone who's been going out as a false prophet when they're confronted, they'll they'll actually say, I'm actually a slave. Someone sold me into menial labor. They will admit degrading stories they will make up rather than admit they were a false prophet. Or when it says, what are these wounds on your back? Uh, False prophets often would uh, scar themselves ritually. If you think back when the prophet Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal, saying, "Whose God will answer our prayers? And They're calling out to their idols and they're slashing and cutting themselves to get the attention of their God. So it's referring to that kind of practice and someone will actually say, oh, my friends beat me. They'll say anything because they're so ashamed of being a false prophet of God. That's how much repulsion the people of God will have for anyone who slanders the truth of God. So no one will want to identify as anyone who misuses what God has said. Now these sins, they weren't the only sins that they had. It's not the only sins that needed to be transformed from, but these were sins that had hung on. Their fathers had failed. That's why their ancestors, just a generation or two before, had ended up in captivity for 70 years in Babylon because of these sins. And when they came back, there were still traces and struggles with it. So they were aware of the failures of their fathers and the failures of their generation. Sins that had hung on and they're wondering... Are we ever ever really going to get out from under this? And so the Lord is speaking to the sins that had most characterized their failures. And the Lord is letting them know on that day, even those sins will be gone. You'll have no experience with them. You won't even remember them because here, people of God, all the voices of doubt in your mind saying of what you cannot be and what you have done, those voices will be silent. Can we imagine what life will be like to never again hear the voice of the accuser, the voice of doubt. Those will become so distant in our memory, it will be forgotten. The only voice that we will remember is the voice of loving grace of our Savior to us, and the voices to each other that lift up his name. God wants us to see what is coming so that we have boldness to step into it and live in that. There will be a day when there's no distraction for God, no idols. If we really believe that, we can walk more firmly and say, yes, so I don't need to have any of them now. There will be a day when there's no voice of accusation and doubt, so I can cast those voices out today. That's the boldness we're meant to have. Because the cleaning that God does in us, as we heard last week, whatever your struggle god cleanses and god transforms verse one on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the people of god to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness a fountain has been opened what is a fountain it is this continuous gushing of water that is Meant to be this sense of of bubbling effervescence that just is, is gushing continually. And that is the cleansing that takes place. It is not just God has visited us and gone up to wherever God is. It is that the flow of the Spirit of God just rushes gushing through us that we are completely clean. You may be asking, well, how how can I be that clean? How can my heart be so pure that I don't even hear accusation? The answer is in verse seven. Awake, O sword. Against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. You may be thinking, now I'm really confused. We we're just talking about a fountain, now we've got a sword and a shepherd. How in the world does all this fit? Well, we start to bring clarity to these word pictures. They actually do come together. When we understand how God deals with sin, to understand how this cleansing fountain flows and transforms us, we need to see, what does God do with the sin that we do have? In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we have this comprehensive statement the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that should cause us all to pause because everyone here is contained in this verse The wrath of God is against all ungodliness and uncleanness of men. And the Bible goes on in chapter 6 of Romans to say, and the wages of sin, it's death. For God to cleanse us, what He clearly says He does, but for God to cleanse us, he cannot just brush it aside. The cleansing of God is not you've you said you're sorry and we're just going to forget that it ever happened. Let's just pretend it never happened. God cannot do that. Justice is necessary. Now, we, we live in a time where we love to demand justice. We don't want to wait any longer. We want justice, particularly of those transgressions that we have seen that have gone on generation to generation. When will justice come? And so, if ever there was an age that would want to hear about the justice of God, it should be our nation today. And yet, (laughs) when we lift up God's justice, people take offense. Interesting. We want justice for people who are doing the sins we don't like. God doesn't like any sin in any person. And so God will do what we say we want. God will lift up justice and the sword of judgment will fall. Now, whether or not we like it, God's not deterred. God has the authority to bring justice. God has the power to exercise justice. God, unlike us, has the wisdom (laughs) to bring justice. And we must not miss this. God has the tenacity to make sure that justice comes. However, how God has chosen to exercise His justice is in the most shocking way imaginable. In fact, it is beyond imagination. Back in verse 7, God takes his sword, which throughout Scripture is a symbol of judgment, the sword. God takes his sword and strikes someone else. Awake, O sword, against And he doesn't say against all those sinners in the land. He says, I'm going to awake. My sword will come to life. My judgment will be exercised against my shepherd. Which a shepherd is someone who cares for God's people. That's where the the phrase pastor comes from. Or I think the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. A shepherd cares for God the people of God. The sword will come against my shepherd who is the man, and this is not the typical Hebrew word for man. It is a man in his prime at the height of his powers. My sword will come against this one who cares for the people, this one who is mighty in power, this one, he goes on to say, who is next to me. It means our associate or our relative. Who is this one God? will strike down. The Bible's now ambiguous we are clearly told who it is in fact the person tells us himself it is jesus who in matthew 26 31 declares this prophecy in verse 7 he says this is fulfilled in me they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter that is jesus he was the man God who became flesh, the only perfect sinless man. He is the one who stands next to the Lord, for the Lord called from heaven and actually said so all the disciples could hear it, this is my beloved Son. He is the shepherd to us. For Jesus claimed in John 10, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. God exercises his justice and he strikes Jesus instead of us. For Jesus went to the cross and took our guilt upon himself. He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin. And the wrath of the Father fell. And Jesus paid the price for our sin. In Romans chapter 3, after speaking of our guilt before God, it says these wonderful words of truth. Romans 3, verses 23 and 24. It begins by saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? Jesus redeems Redeemed is to pay a price that sets someone free. Jesus pays a price to set us free, and that justifies us. We are justified. That was a legal term that means not guilty. So, when we appear before God, there is no guilt. We are not guilty of our sin. Justice has been served, and grace flows. We are justified by grace. We don't earn it. We don't get God's attention because we're better than the next person. God's grace comes to us in the person of Jesus, and our sin is taken away. Or as, as we read in verse 1, a fountain has opened. A grace of God has been opened from the plan and heart of God and what now eternally flows out is the fountain of grace. Ever flowing, washing and anyone who chooses to jump into that fountain is made clean. Never Has a more glorious truth ever been proclaimed in the universe there's never been better news so do not think do not imagine that there could be some other way to God alongside of this look again what verse 7 says now we know who it is Awake, sword of God, and strike your own son. Your own son will go to the cross and die for the sins of people. Do we think that God will go through judging and crushing his son and also, oh, and you're good enough, that's another option. Oh, If you want to follow this other religious leader who gives you a bunch of rules and tells you what to do, oh, that works just as well. Nothing works but what will satisfy the justice of God. And that has taken place. The Son of God has died for sinners, the worst the ugliest of sinners. It's happened. It's historical fact. It's done. It's finished. The fountain has opened and grace flows out now. Jesus alone saves by grace through faith, meaning we put our trust in Him believing that He did die for sinners, and that He was raised from the dead, that He alone can save us. I was watching a TV show earlier that you know, what we hear so often, science is about fact, and religion is about faith. Well, somewhat. Science is about fact. Well, so is so is Christianity. Faith is not just put in these things that flow out of our mind. We don't have faith in just we believe something might have happened. Faith, we put our faith in, we trust in facts. God became flesh, and He died on a cross, and He paid for our sins, and His grave is opened. Our faith is not in something nebulous, not in something that's not concrete. It is in reality the historical actions of God. Faith is in something real. So call on him. Ask him to give you faith. Say, I don't want my sin. I don't want my guilt. Take it. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Even if you've heard it a thousand times in this very church, and not sure what you think about it or whether or not you care, today you can believe and your life will be forever different and you will always know that this day was wondrous. So, why then, at the very end of this, does God, after saying, his hand comes against his son. Does he then come against anyone else? For verse 7 goes on to say, and I will turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land. Two thirds will be cut off and perish. One-third will be left alive. I will put this third into the fire, refine them as one refines silver, test them as he tested gold. What is referring to two different groups of people? For those who don't trust in Jesus, God's justice will be served, and if their sin didn't go on Christ, they're bearing it, and it says in verse 8, and they will perish. The, there's no way around it. There's no, there's no way to get past the judgment of God against all sin. God has the power and authority to hold everyone accountable Christ is the only one that saves us. He's the only one that pays for sin, and we're left without ourselves. There's no way other than the judgment of God upon us. There's no way out of that. For those in Christ who have trusted in him, whenever it seems, why is God against me? Why is this happening? It tells us, verse 9, that is refining we also go through difficult things which we wish we didn't have to go through because we live in this sinful world. We are fully justified, meaning we're, we're innocent before God. It, it's not God's judgment against us. But we're not fully mature, are we? Fully justified, not fully rid of the actions of sin. So, what is God against in us who believe? He's just against the impurities that remain. He's not against you. He's against what needs to not be in you. God desires that your marriage would be better, and God desires that your heart would be full with more than the stuff you can chase in this world and god desires that you would have a wiser tongue in your mouth and god desires that you would be a more effective witness and testimony example of him and so what god is against is whatever keeps you from those things and god is too good to leave it all up to you We have good intentions, but we give up, or we reach a point where we think, well, that's not bad. God will not leave maturity to our standards. Praise Him. And God will not let His children drift aimlessly, He will insert Himself. But verse 9 leaves us with two wonderful results, and we'll close with this, from this refining. We will learn as he refines us, as he uses difficulties, we will learn God truly is all that we need. We don't need all the things we think we do. We just need him, for he says, they will call upon my name and I will answer them and secondly our hearts will become fully his because that's what he wants for the Lord says I will say they are mine They, they're mine and they will say the Lord he, He's my God. Jesus is my savior. The spirit right now is my strength. So when you're worn by life, know God is sculpting you. and know the beauty that he has for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, pierce what needs to be pierced. Tear down whatever's false or exaggerated. And in his place, let us see what cannot be exaggerated. How wonderful Jesus is How wonderful his gospel that saves us is. How wonderful the life you have for us is. Oh, that would fill our hearts that we would not settle for less. And we would not put off loving you, our Lord and God, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In his name we pray. Amen.